Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, feminist self-help for everyone. Brought to you by the School of New Feminist Thought. I'm your host, Kara Lowenthal, Harvard lawyer turned life coach extraordinaire, and I'm here to help you get society's sexist messages out of your brain so you can be confident, feel powerful, and live a life you won't regret when you die. If you want to jumpstart that process, you need to grab my totally free guide to feeling less anxious and more empowered by rewiring your brain. Just text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four and use code word brain or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash brain. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, my friends. This is going to be such a useful episode for all of us, myself included. Anytime I get to talk brains with Rachel Hart, who is my coaching ride or die, my platonic life soulmate and bestie, is a good day. And we are going to be talking about primarily drinking as the version of numbing that we're focusing on in this episode. But I want to be really clear up front, and we talk about this throughout the episode, everything we're talking about applies to any kind of activity or substance or habit that you use to try to numb out negative emotions or distract or get away from negative thoughts that you don't want to experience. So everybody does this and it's human to do this. And I am not a coach who kind of pathologizes any numbing out. But I do think it's important to have a conscious and intentional relationship with your numbing out, which is a funny way of saying it, but I really think that's true. There's a big difference between having no other tools and just depending on numbing out as your only coping strategy and feeling out of control with it and not able to change it versus having a bunch of tools and also knowing that, you know, maybe 10% of the time instead of 100% of the time, you're maybe going to use a tool to numb out and you're okay with that and you understand it and it doesn't feel out of control or like it's controlling you. So I'm really from the, in the public health version, it would be called harm reduction <laughs> point of view. So in this episode, because Rachel focuses on helping people change the relationships with drinking, we do talk about drinking, but it applies to everything. And one of the things we talk about is the ways in which women in particular use numbing and use drinking or shopping or Netflix or swiping on dating apps or food or pills or other drugs or smoking weed or smoking cigarettes or whatever to kind of try to get a break from the relentless internal criticism and anxiety that so many of us have because of the way we think about ourselves. And those thoughts are not objective and true. They're not in our brains because our brains are just objectively observing us and reporting. We think that way because society teaches women to think that way. Society teaches women to constantly evaluate themselves, constantly criticize themselves, constantly be anxious about not measuring up and not doing enough and not doing things right, not doing things well, not being good enough. And so we're extremely anxious as a result. And then we use all these numbing strategies to avoid our anxiety. And so that is why understanding what I call socially programmed anxiety is so crucial because socially programmed anxiety can actually be changed. It can be eliminated because it's the anxiety that specifically comes from your self-critical thinking about not living up to social standards. 
I have a whole free training that I teach about this, and it's our most popular free training that I do. I haven't done it this year yet, but I'm going to be doing it February 10th. So if you're listening to this episode, the day it comes out, that it's Thursday, and we're doing it Saturday. <laughs> Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, February 10th, I'm going to be teaching the Feminist Anxiety Fix, which is my premier training on socially programmed anxiety, the most popular training we do, like I said. It's totally free. And if you can't attend live, we will send a replay. You get the replay whether you attended live or not. But I do recommend if you can try to come live. We're doing it on a Saturday because we get a lot of requests for weekend trainings. This is the first time I've offered that. And I'm hoping that a lot of you who have always wanted to make it now will be able to and be able to come live. Because when you come live, I'm going to teach. We're going to do an interactive exercise. So you're practicing. I'm going to coach and I'm going to answer questions. So it's all the good things. And all the good things live is always so much more impactful. We're even going to have the chat on so you guys can chat. We can really have that like group communal conversation. I'm just really excited. I haven't done this for a few months. We don't usually do it with the chat on and everybody getting to participate. So I'm just excited to try it that way and like hear what all of you have to say. So you need to register, even though it's free, because we need to know you're coming and send you the link. So two ways to do that. You can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash anxiety. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash anxiety, or text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four, and the code word is anxiety. So it's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. Send us your email address. You'll get asked for a code. The code word is anxiety, and then we will send you the link to register and sign up. And I'm gonna see you guys on February tenth live and. Well, not in person, but live on Zoom, and we are going to really dig into your brains and get you some concrete help and change just in the, you know, 60 to 90 minutes that we spend together. All right, my friends, so I will see you then. But for now, we're going to dig into this conversation with Rachel Hart. All right, y'all, I was just telling my guest today, also my best friend, that I didn't really know what to say because I'm so used to saying, hello, my chickens, and, you know have a little conflict with our new identity and evolution and branding and chickens. And I was like, maybe I need another bird. And then she just said, why don't you just make bird sounds? So no, I, said, I said bird calls. Bird calls. So if next time you listen to the podcast, there's just like someone doing a, I don't know, whisper will. Is that the name? That's the name of a bird, right? Or like a, a whipper will. Whipper will. There we go. Or a blue jay call. That's You have Rachel to blame. So we are talking about drinking today. But listen, even if you don't drink, like I don't drink, you're going to want to listen to this episode because really what we're talking about is all of the kind of numbing and compulsive behaviors that we use to try to get away from our feelings. So if you are alive and a human, you are doing something to try to get away from your feelings. And it may be drinking, it might be something else, but you're still going to get a lot out of this. So this is like the podcast about drinking. That's for everybody, regardless of what you drink. And I'm here with Rachel. Rachel Anhart. Is that your middle yeah, name? Yeah. No, no that's right. We have the same middle name. Spell differently, though. We spell it differently. Well, I have the spelling I was given and the spelling I adopted, my chosen spelling. My parents spelled it A-N-N, but then I read Anne of Green Gables and, of course, wanted to be like that. So I, you know, emotionally adopted- Oh, you wanted to be me, A-N-N-E. Yes. I emotionally adopted the E, but it's not on my birth certificate. Oh, I love that you emotionally adopted the way I spell my middle name. (laughs) Well, it wasn't you. It was Anne of Green Gables, but now it's a point of similarity. All right. Rachel, tell us who you are and what you do and why you're here. I am not Anne of Green Gables. So I, like Kara, am a coach and I work with people to help them develop 
a relationship with alcohol that feels good for them, whatever that means. So for some people, that means drinking less. For some people, it means, you know, saving alcohol for special occasions. For other people, it's like not having alcohol in their life. So essentially, it's about helping you figure out what feels right and good for you. Like Kara said, I work with people around alcohol, but of course, all the numbing behaviors come in, right? So a lot of times people will see that it's not just they're drinking, it shows up in their eating, it shows up in their working, it shows up in spending, it shows up in all these places. And so it really is, you talk about, Kara, the idea of there's really like nothing better than being in charge of your own brain. And that's what you're teaching women how to do. I feel like the same thing applies with my work as well. And let's talk about how we met. So everybody knows the background. <laughs> we met at a Holiday well, Inn. It was a Holiday Inn Sacramento. Express. Holiday Inn Express. Yeah. Not even a Holiday Inn. A Holiday, Holiday Inn Express. Express. Mm-hmm. We met in a conference room. Mm-hmm. I was the first person in the room trying to get Obviously. a good, like the first best seat for coach training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Gara was the second person in the room. <laughs> And immediately gravitated to me. (laughs) And then it turns out we had all these things in common and we, the universe had been trying to bring us together for years. Well, mostly we were in a room of people from all over the country with a lot of different dispositions. And we were like, oh, you're from New York and a brunette. And like, you seem to maybe not do mystical circles. So great. Here we, of course, little did we know Rachel would end up doing mystical circles, but do I do mystical circles? I don't know. You got more woo than I did over time. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. Here we are. Eight years later, a long, almost 10 a years A long later. time, yeah. Yeah. All right. That's not why people are here there. Okay. So let's talk about people who've been listening to the podcast are actually very tuned into this concept of like falling off the wagon right now because we just did a whole series on kind of what I teach around why people fall off the wagon in general, like what that even means and why it happens. But so I will not kind of rehash that here, but I'd love to hear from you. I feel like drinking is maybe second right after weight loss, the most common thing for people to make like a resolution about and then fall off the wagon. I even see in my social media posts, like people I'm friendly with being like, well, dry January got to the ninth and then blah, right? (laughs) It's like almost a whole (laughs) cultural narrative, both around trying to do a dry January and then like how soon you stop. So I'd love to hear from you kind of, why is that so common that people like make a drinking resolution and then fail so quickly? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think alcohol, much like food, falls often into this kind of like good and bad, or I was good, I was bad. And that mentality can fuel a lot of people getting to the end of the year and then being like, oh God, like too much overindulgence. I was really bad. I was drinking too much. So now I'm going to be good and do a dry January. So it fuels that kind of binge and restrict mentality that of course, you know, when you're approaching a period of taking a break from drinking with that mentality, it's not great. You're generally going to hit a moment where you're like, well, that didn't work and then throw in the towel. I think also a lot of times there's so much shame that people will have and fear if it feels at all like, why am I not able to control my drinking? Like what is going on here? And so a lot of times what I see and what I did myself, because, you know, this work was my work to do as well. You know, I would approach it as like, okay, so I got to like prove, I got to prove that I can go a certain number of days to prove that I don't have a problem. Right. And so I wasn't looking at any of the reasons about like why I was drinking or what my desire was about. It was kind of like, let me just, I'm just going to like grit my teeth and use avoidance and get through a certain number of days to kind of prove that there's nothing wrong here. And of course, both of these mentalities, I think, are why a lot of people 
fall off the wagon. And then, like you said, you see on social media, people are like, okay, well, so much for that resolution. Like we got to, you know, day 10 and or, not working. Or they make it through and they're like, okay, dry January's over. I celebrated by binge drinking February 1st. Like there is something so weird about the idea of like, okay, I'm just going to, it's like a diet, right? Or like a shopping freeze or not that taking a break from an activity can't be helpful to understand. But yeah. if you're like, well, I'm taking a break and then I'm just going right back to how I did it before, right? What is the real point of the break? I think that idea that people are trying to prove something comes up a lot in resolutions. One of the things that we've been talking about on the podcast lately is like, what is the purpose behind the resolution you set? Is it shame motivated? Are you trying to prove something to somebody else? Are you trying to prove something to yourself? And that is such a good example of it. You're like, okay, my logic is that no matter how out of control I feel around my drinking and how negative it negatively it's impacting me, if I can go 30 days and I don't quote unquote have a problem, and then I can just go back to using it the way I have been. Well, I think what happens so is we do people a disservice because so often the conversation around alcohol and I mean, frankly, food too, is really just a conversation around quantity, right? And so it's like, how much are you drinking? What, you know, so we're, we're very fixated on the number. And so when you're very fixated on the number, you think that if I just focus on the number, that's going to give me the solution, right? So if I'm drinking too much, right, and then I'm able not to drink at all, then, you know, I was, I had a problem with the number and now I changed the number. And that's why a lot of people, I mean, sometimes people go into it kind of like, okay, I made it to the end of January. Like now let's party. You know, I find a lot of people will have the experience and I did as well of, okay, like that felt good. Like I felt physically better. Like I noticed kind of physical transformations. Maybe I didn't need it as much in certain situations that I thought I would. And then it starts to, you reintroduce alcohol and it can start to be this thing where it feels like, you know, you're just kind of falling back into your old patterns, right? And so it was like, well, what did, what was that all about? And again, because it's such a, we tend to look at this issue just from the surface level. I tell people all the time, like two people can be polishing off a bottle of wine, you know, at night and their motivations, their desires, what's going on can be completely different. But we're just treating it from this place of like, just don't drink so much, right? Or just take a period of time off. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are like, okay, well, why why didn't that work? Yeah. I think that gets to something you talk about that's so important, which is like that most people aren't really even aware of why they're drinking, right? And I think the term you use is more like people ignore the reason they drink. So can you talk a little bit about that? These people are like consciously ignoring the reason they drink or they're just like, is it like willful denial or is it like people just aren't conscious of it? Yeah. I don't think it's willful denial. And I, I mean, I think we're not taught to understand it. I don't think no one gives us kind of any kind of, I don't know, like way to understand our drinking other than this kind of like good drinking, bad drinking, normal drinking, abnormal drinking. So when I talk about, you know, people not really being fully aware, I mean, listen, for the longest time, I was just like, I just like to drink. It's fun, like full stop, right? Or like, I like the taste. I like craft cocktails, the end. And yeah, I always say to people, I'm not here to be like, and that's not true. Like you don't actually really understand what's going on. It's like, yes, and what else? Like you like the taste and what else is it doing for you? And by the way, that can totally change in different situations, in different settings, around different people. But we're not really taught to have that kind of deeper conversation and understand how it's intertwined in so many areas of our life. And the fact that Yes, it's a reward for your lower brain, for sure. And also, 
your higher brain is learning what it symbolizes, right? It, it, like the drink will start to symbolize these unconscious things that I think we're often not aware of. So let's talk a little bit more about what each of like for people who haven't been listening to your podcast, aren't as deep into your work. Can you talk a little bit about like, what do you mean when you say it's a reward for the lower brain? Like what is mm-hmm. it doing to your system that is feel that feels good to people? Well, I mean, I think that one of the things, and I'm sure your listeners already know all of this, right? But the the lower brain is really designed to just go find rewards in the environment. And so when I say it's a reward, it's a reward in the sense that your lower brain is like, ooh, good, <laughs> right? Like it's activating your reward system in your lower brain. And so the fact that it is, you know, pleasurable, then your brain starts to remember it. It wants to know where can I find it again, but also understanding that, you know, the reward that you get from a grape is going to be very different than the reward, the intensity of the reward that you get from, you know, a barrel of fermented grapes, right? Like that intensity goes up. And so understanding that like the drive of the lower brain really is so basic, so simple. It's how do I keep this organism safe, right? And I'm going to do it by trying to you know, find pleasure and avoid pain, right? And that's, it's like a very simple algorithm that's running that lower brain. And so understanding, yeah, that, that alcohol, like many things, right? Like food, like sex, like the rewards that we get from scrolling through, you know, TikTok, like there's so many things that give us that kind of like immediate little like, Ooh, this is good, right? I want more. And so that's what, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to the lower brain. And then on top of that, there are these sort of the stories that we layer on about what a drink means and what it does for us. So can you talk, what are some common stories you see people have about kind of like what drinking symbolizes or why it's important? Yeah. So I think for some people, it can be like, this is my treat for, you know, like all the hard work that I did. Sometimes it can be like, this is a sign that the day is done, right? Like, so a lot of parents, it's just like, I'm off the clock, right? Open up that bottle, (laughs) right? Get out the beer, like I'm off the clock. A lot of people, we have the stories around like, this is how I form emotional bonds and feel connected. It can be about like, this is how we elevate situations or how we celebrate, how we make things more special. We can use alcohol to feel more at ease in social situations when we feel anxiety. It can be about things are too much right now, right? Like I just can't handle everything that's going on. And this is my way to just tap out, right? It can be a sense of freedom for some people, this idea of like, now I get to be wild, right? I don't have to be my kind of you know, paying attention to what people think, I can kind of cut loose and be wild. Um, And then, of course, it's often connected with sleeping. It's often connected with pain management. I mean, there's so many different kinds of stories that are wrapped up into this. I mean, I talk, so I talk about this as different archetypes that your brain will start to learn like, oh, this is what the drink is doing for me. And that, that level, even though it's there, it's often happening at a very unconscious level. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the archetypes, but I just want to talk a little bit more about this sort of, it's so interesting the way that our brain like attaches a story to the act. And then I'm, I'm thinking of two different examples. So one is when I was dated this guy very briefly in my, I don't know, like early 30s. But I remember him saying to me like kind of, but he was in his also early 30s, not like 21 and in a frat or something. I remember him saying to me like, you're like the first person I've ever met who likes to have sex sober. Because it's like so common that people use alcohol to lubricate, pun not intended, I guess, sexual interactions, right? To like feel sexy, to like lower their inhibitions, to 
not feel uptight to, you know, all, which is like, and at the time I was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like that is, I guess, just moment of being like, people are doing this in a completely different way, but that sort of how common it was for him to have alcohol just be part of any kind of date or sexual interaction. And then the other funny example I'm thinking of is um, my partner doesn't really drink that much anymore because I don't really drink and not that he's not allowed to or something, but he just says his frequency has gone down because I'm not drinking. So then he discovered non-alcoholic beer and he will drink non-alcoholic beer. And to him, it's like, well, it's fun. I'm having a beer. Actually, the alcohol is no longer there, but the symbolism of like having a beer still like signals. It's like such a perfect example of how the experience you're having, maybe actually we attribute it to the alcohol, but it may be actually completely unrelated to the alcohol or the alcohol could even be counterproductive to the experience, but we have a story about it. So he's still like, it is still fun for him to have a beer because his story is that beer is fun, even though the beer is actually not doing anything to his system biologically, which I think is like fascinating. Okay. So can you tell us, tell us some about the eight archetypes as no pop quiz. This feels like, <laughs> like, I, mean, like I don't want to do it live. Tell us what the eight archetypes are. I mean, I, th- I think let's back up a little. Kind of tell us why is it helpful to think of your drinking as an archetype, right? Like what led you to kind of develop this after working in this area for a while? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I encountered is that, you know, people will have very unique relationships with their desire, with what the drink represents, how they use it. And so, you know, my desire to have a way for people to help kind of find themselves. And and, and I, what I will say about the archetypes is, is it's not like, okay, this is who I am. I am this type of drinker. The archetypes I talk about, like they're always present. They always apply. They're just, they're not just like, Ooh, the only apply for problematic drinking. It's about understanding that our brain is always getting these messages from the time that we're kids, right? I mean, this happens for many people well before they start ever drinking, but we're getting all these messages and the brain is starting to kind of learn, oh, this is what the drink symbolizes. This is what it's doing for me, or this is what I think it's doing for me in this situation. And so the archetypes, when I have people kind of take the quiz and and go through and, and also like self-identify, one of the things that I'm always saying is, you know, you most people will identify with multiple archetypes and it can change over time. Like it can change your archetypes maybe in your teens and 20s when you started drinking, maybe very different in your 40s and 50s. They may look very different you know, depending on where you are, it's really just to help you understand, hey, what else is here? Like in this moment, when I'm desiring the drink, it's the, yeah, I like to drink like you're, you know, it's like, yeah, I like the beer. And what else, right? What else is there? And so there are eight archetypes. We have the upgrade, which is all about like elevating situations, making things special, making things celebratory. I talk about one called the connector, which is like it sounds like it's about creating emotional bonds. The reward, the reward is all about that kind of like using alcohol either as like a treat or like a sign, like kind of like I'm done, right? Like (laughs) this is the end of the day. Sometimes people will fall with a reward that can be like a daily thing. Sometimes people will be like, no, no, no. I like save it up until, you know, I get through my week and then the weekend comes. There's also the escape, which is much more of that sense of 
I just need to stop thinking, right? Like whatever's on my mind, whatever is bothering me, I need a way to stop thinking. And then alcohol becomes a way to do that. There's the mask. That is something that I really identified with in my twenties, which is all about drinking to specifically deal with social anxiety and that sense of like, you know, for me, because like, like you said, alcohol was also very connected with sex for me because I was like, Oh, well it works well in at parties when I'm feeling anxious. So when I have all my clothes off, like that will help too. Right. (laughs) So there's the mask. There's also the relief or the remedy, sorry, which is all about using it for, you know, managing any kind of discomfort, managing any kind of insomnia. There's hourglass, which is all about when people will start, you know, using it as a way to deal with boredom or having a lot of kind of unscheduled time. And then there is the release. That was another thing for me that I really identified with in my 20s when I was drinking a lot, which was all about like, I'm so good. I'm, you know, like I do everything right. And this is my chance to be kind of like wild and I don't have to follow all the rules. I can, you know, just kind of cut loose. So the idea here is using these archetypes to help you understand why it can be challenging to say no. Because if we're just focus on quantity, if we're just focused on the number, we're going to miss what's actually happening in in a particular situation. We're going to miss why when it it's like, okay, you know, I can it's I can easily say no maybe when I'm at home, but it's harder when I'm out, or people will say vice versa to really understand, okay, so what's happening beneath the surface that we need to address as well if you want to create that change. I think it's important to just emphasize what you said, which is that it's not sort of like, oh, this is your like genetic or astrological predisposition to this, right? It's just a way of describing kind of what are the thought and use patterns you've gotten into in ways that like, obviously everybody's a tiny bit different, but if we look at all the ways people are drinking, we can say, okay, they tend to cluster into kind of these eight patterns and you're probably in what, two of the patterns, three of the pat, like you could be in more than one of the patterns. Well, when people do this work, they always get a, a primary and secondary archetype, which just says like, these are kind of like the top two tendencies that you have, but people will find like other ones apply as well. Right. And again, it's not like, and, you know, we can like look into your DNA and this is going to describe, you know, what's going on. It really is just helping you kind of understand what is there, what is connected with your desire beyond just like, yeah, I like to drink. I'm just thinking about like people who go on vacation. One of the things I've always found odd as a non-drinker is that suddenly on vacation, people will just start drinking at like 10 a.m. And it's occurs to me, it's like, it's, it's like, dude, it's like the celebration one. And then it's also the like, not hourglass, not knowing what to do with time. It's unstructured. I don't have my routine. So like, it's like you get into the airport and all of a sudden it's just like a liminal space where it's normal to have beer at 9 a.m. at breakfast when like those same people would usually, I mean, maybe some people are just having beer at 9am with breakfast anyway, but I feel like more people in an airport are doing it who wouldn't do it somewhere else because it is like that marker of like, oh, it's fun time for people. And that like, I'm out of my routine. So I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, I used to travel a lot before I became a coach. And so I was traveling, I was like in airports all the time, traveling internationally so much. And I had so much pent up anxiety about travel, right? And so it was like, my brain was always spinning, like, am I going to be there on time? Is a cab? Are we going to get stuck in traffic? What's going to happen? And if I miss this connection, like I had so much of that kind of like, oh, I'm wound so tight in this anxiety. But for me, I would get through security and it was like, okay, like I, where's the lounge, right? And it wasn't like a fun thing in 
that instance, it was that for me, it was that moment of like, okay, like this is my reward for just sitting, you know, going through right. the Lincoln tunnel just and surviving being like, this surviving it. Right. And, yeah. and, but I think that's the point is that you can see, like, you can look at people drinking whatever at like 8 a.m. in an airport and it's happening for all of these different reasons. And again, one of the things that were so frustrating for me, and I think frustrating for so many people that I work with is this sense of like, why can I drink quote unquote normally over here in this situation and I'm not overdoing it? And then in this other situation, it feels like a different version of me. So people, again, because we so often only talk about quantity, we don't give people any kind of, I don't like any kind of tether to understand, hey, this is why your drinking can look different in different situations and why maybe you're like, yeah, I know to, you know, be like, okay, I'm going to take it easy over here. And in this other place, I don't. And that I think is a missing piece of a puzzle for a lot of people. So I think what you're talking about really reminds me of what I've been teaching this month around like falling off the wagon and why that happens. And, you know, people think that it's just like, it's about willpower, it's about discipline. And when you use that sort of flattening like analysis sort of just the same as when you use the flattening analysis of like, well, two drinks a night is normal. And so if I have that amount, then that, you know, no matter what the emotion or what it's like for me underneath, like that's just, I'm just going to evaluate it with that number. People use the same thing of sort of like, I can look at one person who's maybe going to the gym every day and I think, wow, they have so much willpower and discipline, but actually it may not even be hard for them to do that because they don't have whatever emotions are getting in the way. Whereas somebody who's going once a week, it might be like actually such a bigger psychological and emotional project for them to be able to do that based on whatever the kind of emotional and thought work barriers they have. And that one of the reasons people fall off the wagon is that we don't equip them with any emotional tools to be like, why is this hard for me? Like, what is happening? What is coming up for me? It's like the inability to feel discomfort is really why people stop achieving their goals, whether it's not drinking or anything else, right? It's not willpower or discipline. It's I don't have the tools and skills to deal with how I feel. And so it doesn't matter how motivated you feel January 1st, if you don't have those tools, you're not making it very far. Yeah. And I think sometimes, what, especially when it comes to desire and urges, the only tools that we are given are like, okay, so you need to grit your teeth or you just right. need to avoid the situation. And I mean, I was just coaching someone on this yesterday where, you know, I talk about, we have to develop a different relationship with our urges, right? Like imagine, you know, I always talk about like, imagine just being like so curious when the urge appears, you know, welcoming it, wanting it to be there. I mean, I even talk with, you know, people I work with about, you know, can we find some humor in the presence of the urge? And this one person I was coaching was saying, I'm just ticked off. Like, I'm just angry. Like, I'm, I'm just angry when it's there. I don't want to talk to it. I don't want to be curious about it. I want it to go away. And so as we were starting to really unravel what was going on there, one of the things that she was saying is, well, I just don't believe that I actually can trust myself when I have urges. And so we talked about what that means. Like when your lower brain is like, ooh, reward, reward, and it's accompanied with this, you know, this thought that maybe you've practiced over and over again, I can't be trusted. What's actually going on is that you're not angry at the urge, you're scared. And so then how do we handle these moments? And, and I think a big piece of that when it comes to 
changing your relationship with your desire and your urges is disentangling all of that, right? Like being able to see like, this is my lower brain over here, just being like, reward, rewards are good, rewards, more reward, right? And like then that blinking like red neon sign in a red light district. It's oh, just 100%. Like, reward, reward. <laughs> and then over here is the story, right? Like the story that, you know, this person had attached to her drinking, which was like, oh, obviously I'm someone who can't be trusted, right? Like as if that was just like who she was built into, you know, like her DNA. And so, yeah, we have to equip people with tools. Not only how do you manage the discomfort, how do you get curious about your urges? How do you get curious around temptation and or why are you avoiding temptation? I think that's like a, a lot of people will structure dry January to be like, yeah, okay, I can do it. But like, I definitely can't see these friends and I'm definitely not going to go here. And right. Or like, I can't do it because my sister's getting married in January. So it'll have to be a different month because I can't possibly go to my sister's wedding and not drink. Exactly. And so we need changing the circumstance. We need all of these tools, you know, and I think when it comes to all the excuses that come up, we need tools that are more than just like, well, just say no, (laughs) right? Like, just don't do it. Just don't be stupid. Right. It's like, well, when I'm having these excuses, I always think that excuses are actually really helpful, that they're trying to help us understand something about the habit that we can't fully see. They're trying to you know, when we approach all of these things from a place of curiosity, they're trying to show something and reveal something that actually helps us create change. But so often we're like, oh, just go away. I don't want you here. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, you know, one of the things that we talked about on the podcast a bunch before January 1st was the sort of unrealistic expectation when we make a resolution or set a goal that's just sort of like, okay, well, I've planned for what I need for this to all work great the first time. And so off we go, right? As opposed to planning for, well, okay, but like what obstacles come up, right? And I used, I mean, the example I gave on the podcast was actually was smoking and it was like, okay, your plan can be, I'm going to use the patch. That's not really a plan. Like, what are you going to do when you feel anxious and you're used to smoking to cope with it? What are you going to do when your friends go out for their smoke break and you feel FOMO? What are you going to do when you get drunk and do have a cigarette? Then you got to decide how to think about that. Like all of that is what you're saying is completely in line, which is like, we need to have a plan beyond, I'm just going to white knuckle it, or I'm just going to avoid these circumstances, which I think comes back to what we talked about in the beginning that feels so important, which is like, what's the purpose of the break or the change or the whatever, right? Like, why are we doing this? And what's the plan for afterwards? Like, are we trying to get to know our drinking better? Are we trying to reduce our drinking in some sort of ongoing way? Whether we're not drinking to prove to ourselves we don't have a quote unquote problem, or we're trying to, you know, lose weight to prove that we're good enough, or we're trying to like work out to prove that we're disciplined. Or it's like, if you're trying to do a thing to prove something to your own brain, basically, right, or somebody else, you're projecting your own brain onto, even if you do it, you get to the end, it's like, okay, now what? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why so many people, I work with so many people, I I mean, have this in my own experience, right? That it's like, okay, well, like, I got everything else in my life figured out. I'm just like a fuck up here. So I'm finally going to stop feeling like a fuck up if I fix my drinking, right? I'm finally going to feel good about myself. And then I have so many people who are like, but here I am. You know, like I'll work with people who are like, I'm not even drinking right now, but I'm here. I'm like, you right? Like I'm, I'm here. I'm in this membership because it's like, I figured out how to say no, but I'm still just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I still don't actually feel good about myself. And they don't realize when you, when the brain has that thought pattern, you're a screw up or you're a fuck up. 
you change the circumstance and it's like, yeah, but with this neural pathway is very fast right. and it's very fun. <laughs> like we do it very quickly. It's very so familiar. Yeah. Find the new thing. Right. And I, so, mean, I think that's the most common to just see it like come up in some other area instead. Like, okay, I'm not drinking, but now I'm like online shopping a lot or I'm like really scrolling on my phone all the time or I'm whatever else. Yeah, exactly. So where can people find and learn about their archetype? We love a good self-knowledge quiz. Where we love a good we, quiz. Yeah. We love a good quiz. Where can we find out our archetypes? So if you go to uh, findyourdrinktype.com, you can take the quiz there. You'll get your primary and your secondary archetypes. Again, this is not like who you are. These are the kind of tendencies that right now in your life, your drinking may gravitate towards. Again, you know, if you took the quiz, you know, a decade ago, if you take it a decade from now, it can change. So it really is about just giving you that kind of information. You'll also get your full results for all eight archetypes as well. So you can see which ones you're kind of most likely or least likely to apply right now. And you all need to know that Rachel is the most thorough content creator in the history of the universe. So I promise you, I have not seen it. So I'm making this up. But I would bet that when you put together everything she wrote for all eight archetypes, it is probably the length of a published book. And if not, could easily be made into one. So that is not to overwhelm you. You only need to read about one or two, but it's not going to be like, surprise, you're the social drinking archetype. You like to drink in social situations. The end. Like that's not how Rachel rolls. So yeah, no. So so when you get the information, yes, that is a good point. So when you when you get it, it will talk about common obstacles. It will talk about the mindset trap. Each archetype has a superpower. It will talk about that. It gives you like a whole, <laughs> Kara is laughing. It gives you like a whole breakdown to really understand, hey, when you when you see that this archetype applies, why does it actually make not only it tricky to say no, but why don't rules work? Why don't, you know, setting rules or why don't just like abstaining? Why isn't that going to help you create the change that you want? And then presumably it's going to help direct them towards how to do it better. Yes, exactly. Yes. So you should check it out. When Rachel sent in what she called B minus work at, for her interview prep for this, my PR person whose job it is to book podcast guests said, I've never seen anything like this. This is the model for all time for everyone else. And that was what Rachel considers her B minus work. So, <laughs> And she considers the archetypes her A plus work. So <laughs> you need to go to the website. Give it to us again. Findyourdrinktype.com findyourdrinktype.com. Go take the quiz. And then where can people find you on podcasts if they want to learn? Uh, so you can find me at rachelhart.com. My podcast is Take a Break from Drinking. And then I have a membership as well called Take a Break. You will find our work is very compatible. Somebody in the Society Facebook group the other day was like, I love this. I had said something in an event that was like about work. And they were like, that sounds really similar to this thing that this coach Rachel Hart says. And I was like, yes, I'm sure that we got it from each other because we text all the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Thank you. If you're loving what you're learning on the podcast, you have got to come check out the Feminist Self-Help Society. It's our newly revamped community and classroom where you get individual help to better apply these concepts to your life, along with a library of next level, blow your mind coaching tools and concepts that I just can't fit in a podcast episode. It's also where you can hang out, get coached, and nerd out about all things thought work and feminist mindset with other podcast listeners just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life, I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash society. I can't wait to see you there.